devotional plan. I changed the plan. We're going to pray right now after we read from Ephesians 3. So take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And I'd like to read from verses 1 through um, 13 of Ephesians. So Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13. You follow along in your copy of the Scriptures as I read from the New International Translation uh, in my hand. Hear then what Holy Scripture says. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me my revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together of the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of His power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this plan, the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to His eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Him and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we have opened before us the only perfect thing in this room. The only thing that that is true and right and uh, absolutely righteous. It's the only perfect, flawless thing in, in the room is this book. You have spoken it. You breathed it out. And we pray now, Father, that you, by your Spirit, as we look into it, would give us insight, that you would speak to us again. It is a grand moment. We believe it's a grand moment when we open our Bibles and we hear from you. So speak to us today. Give us ears to listen, hearts to love, eyes to see, feet to obey, as we sit under the authority of your perfect word. Do that for us, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The first year that my wife and I bought a Christmas tree, our goal was to leave the lot in Dallas with the best looking tree that had the cheapest price tag on it possible. Uh, It's not easy to find an inexpensive Christmas tree in a major metropolitan city. They have to bring them from all over the place. And it just we you know, grew up in western New York. It wasn't quite the same going to shop for a Christmas tree and shorts and a t-shirt, but we managed. We went. 
Um, if, if you've ever selected your own tree from a lot, you know the process, or, or from a, a field, you know the process that you go through, don't you? You look at the tree from several different angles, you look for bare spots, you try to determine if it's going to be straight in your living room, you try to find the best specimen that you possibly can to decorate your home. Mike Rocco, uh, the Chicago newspaper columnist, once wrote about a young couple who stepped onto the lot with next to nothing in their wallets. Um, he heard about the story from a Christmas tree salesman in Chicago named Slats Grobnik, which is an awesome name. Slats. Anybody who's pregnant in our church, Slats would be a marvelous first name, I think. I'm recommending it. Little baby Slats. Uh, I, maybe I've told you about this couple before. I can't remember. As Slats described it, the guy, he was skinny. He had this huge Adam's apple, and she was a, a, a pretty girl. They, they walked under the lot. They were wearing what looked like came from the bottom of the barrel of the Salvation Army uh, Depot. Uh, they, they looked at all these trees, and they found trees that were really expensive. And together, though, they found a scotch pine tree that was okay on one side. The other side was completely bare. It just was awful. Well, they kept looking and they found another tree that was similar, looked good on one side, but just horrible on the other. And they picked up both trees and they asked Slats if they could, if he would take three bucks for both trees. <laughs> Slats, there's no way I'm going to sell either of those trees. If you give me three bucks, I'll, I'm almost willing to give you three bucks to take them away. They bought the trees. And Slats tells it a few days later, he was walking down the street and he saw a beautiful, beautiful tree in that couple's apartment. It was thick, it was well-rounded. He went and knocked on the door and asked about the tree. And they, they said what they had done is they took the two trees and they put them right next to each other where they were so thin, they wired around uh, the, the, the trunks of the tree and put those two, tree two trees together, and the branches overlapped, and they formed a perfect tree, a tree so thick you couldn't even see the wire. It was a forest of its own, Slats said. Slats says this, that's the secret. He says, you take two trees that aren't perfect, that have flaws, that I even might be homely, that maybe nobody else would want, and if you put them together just right, you can come up with something really beautiful. It's a fine illustration of what God does in a church when He brings people together. A healthy congregation is always more than the sum of its parts. And if Ephesians is to believe, a church together is the very dwelling place of God. Uh, the church is a massive theme in the book of Ephesians, which is actually one of the reasons why I selected this book for us to study during this year. We have a loving and a unified congregation with many, many strengths. But I think that the centrality of the church, the centrality of a local body of believers uh, for your health as a follower of Christ is a weighty concept that we sometimes treat very lightly. Uh, committing yourself to a local body of believers, it's inconvenient. It's costly. It cuts across the grain of your natural desire to manage your life without interference. 
It's contrary to the the technological atmosphere of the day. Uh, We are taught by our technology that you don't need anybody else and you shouldn't ever have to compromise to be with somebody else because you can always listen to your own music, watch your own television show, entertain yourself with your own movies, with your own games, and they're all miniaturized and you can walk around and touch and play with them without ever having to talk to anybody else. You don't need to compromise. You don't need to try and get along with somebody because you can create your own world with the things that you can buy. What we find when we turn to the book of Ephesians, though, is that the unity and the togetherness of the church is dear to God. Uh, It surprises us. It surprises us as we read this book how much God pursues, how strongly God is on the hunt for a congregation to uh, love one another, to be united with one another. Maybe this morning you're, you're visiting with us. We usually have a few new people uh, in our services. And one of the things that you should know about our congregation is that we value, we strive to value the things that God values, the things that He tells us in His Word that He values. It's the happiest way to live on earth. That's why we're pursuing that. God values the church. Maybe today I'll help you figure out why. When Christ died, he took two disparate groups, Jews and Gentiles, separated by culture, by religion, by ethnicity, and he put them together in one new body, the church. And and from that union, we learn, from that union that's in Ephesians between Jews and Gentiles, we learn how to work through our own issues that divide us. Different from Jews and Gentiles, but our own issues that divide us. Uh, We remember the grace that we've received. It's one of the themes of Ephesians 2. We remember the grace and, and we endure the mess that being with one another creates. And we delight in the glory that is true of us because God dwells in us. All themes that Paul has been unfolding for us in Ephesians 2. Today what I want to do is I want to remind you why the unity of the church is worth fighting for. Why it's worth suffering for. And I want to begin by asking a very simple question. What price are you willing to pay in order to preserve the unity of the congregation? It's a good question. If, if you're a, a part of our church, you should think about this question. What price are you willing to pay to maintain the unity of the congregation? What, what will you bear? What, what consequences will you endure so that you can, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Now, this is a Baptist church, right? <laughs> And by pedigree, we know a thing or two about dividing churches, disunifying churches. You can't bend in every way to preserve the unity of the church. We don't agree with uh, one Episcopalian bishop who said, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism, always choose heresy. We don't agree with him about that. But, But heresy is not usually the reason that causes churches to fall apart, to divide. I want to direct your attention this morning for help to the first several verses of Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, the first 13 verses that I just read form a unique section in Paul's letter. It's, it's basically a long parenthesis. Paul is going to digress here in his thinking. Um, let me show you this. It's going to take a moment or two, but I want to show you, trace with you through uh, this thinking in Ephesians, uh, the book of Ephesians. 
Paul begins in chapter 1 with this grand unfolding of the Gospel. The Gospel is as big as God. All three members of the Trinity are involved in this great work of reconciling uh, God's people to Himself. This grand Gospel is Ephesians 1. In Ephesians, uh, then he prays for the church, that they would grow in their understanding of the Gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about how we individually participate in the Gospel. That's in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we, uh, Paul talks about the corporate nature of our response to the Gospel. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you become a member of the body of Christ. And there is a corporateness to our faith. And then... In light of that, Paul wants to pray for them. He wants to pray for them again that they would be strengthened in love. Christ has united us together by faith. (laughs) Paul prays that we would like that, that we would enjoy being united together with one another, that we would love it. But before he prays, he actually takes a little tangent. Let me show that to you in the text. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason, well, what reason? The reason is that uh, the reason that he's uh, writing is because of their uniting together as one body. So for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, and then in my translation there's a dash. There's, that's not original to the text, but it's pretty evident here. Paul is interrupting himself, and he's going to talk about his ministry to the Gentiles. And he's going to pick up again what he was writing in verse 14. Look at verse 14. It starts, for this reason. What Paul is doing is in verse 14, he's going back to what he was doing in verse 1. He starts verse 1, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Then he interrupts himself. And then in verse 14, he comes back, for this reason. In fact, you might want to circle both of those things uh, in your Bible and, and connect them. Paul, there's a whole tangent in verses uh, 2-13. Let's trace uh, some of their thinking here. Paul Paul has been writing about the glory of the Gospel. And I wonder if in the Ephesian church, they, knowing where Paul was, Paul was in prison, knowing where Paul was, they were beginning to, to ask a few questions. Paul, if the Gospel is so glorious, if God is so rich in mercy, if God's love is so great, Why are you in prison for proclaiming it? Doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? Paul, if if, if God is all-powerful, like you say, and His forgiveness is so magnificent, and this message is so world-conquering, why are you in prison for this? And uh, if if we believe what you said, are we going to end up in prison too? Is what you said really true? If you uh, picked up the newspaper this morning and you read an article that described how your financial counselor had been arrested and was in prison, you would read that article with a great deal of care, wouldn't you? (laughs) You want to know what happened, why was this guy arrested, and what's going to happen to my money? Paul, the preacher of the gospel, is in prison. What's going to happen? What does this mean? And verses 2 through 13 are actually here to allay their fears. Um, I know that because look at verse 13, what it says here. I ask you, therefore, on the basis of everything I've said, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are your glory. So you see the context here, how this works? 
Paul speaks about their unity. He wants to pray for it. Before he does, though, he wants to explain to them, if you're wondering why I'm in prison and the gospel I preach is so good, let me tell you about it. Let me tell you about my suffering for you and how it works in to the gospel. And in the process of that, Paul tells them that it's, it's a good message still. It's a treasure message. It's a wonderfully wise message. In fact, Paul says the gospel of, of the church of Jesus Christ uh, of our Lord is, is so glorious that it's worth suffering for like I am. I'd go to prison, Paul says, for the privilege of telling you about Jesus Christ. So today what I want to do from verses 1 through 6 is that as a, a background is I want to show you why the unity of the church is worth fighting for, why it's worth suffering for, why it's worth putting up with each other or sticking around or working through prickly issues that inevitably will, will come up. We fight, in short answer to that question, because the message that formed the church is powerful. It's so powerful, in fact, that it's done two things that I want to tell you about. First of all, that message has transformed Paul's life. It transformed Paul's life. It's surprising when you think about the New Testament how much of the New Testament books focus our attention on the spiritual life of the Apostle Paul. Um, it begins with his life before he was a Christian, and it takes us almost to his death as a martyr. His conversion story is told three times in the book of Acts, and he writes over and over again about his experience of following Jesus Christ. And I think the reason that the New Testament focuses so much on the Apostle Paul is because his spiritual story speaks powerfully to the poisonous and ruinous nature of self-righteous religion. See, there is in each one of us an impulse to make our faith a matter of personal effort and personal achievement, a matter of making yourself acceptable to God. I'm going to get back on the right path, you say, so I'm going to go and do some right things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to stop swearing so much. I'm going to be a nicer person. I'm going to do good things so that I can be a good person. Uh, This is rule-keeping religion. It's turning Christianity into a matter of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and making it on your own. Paul exemplified that. In fact, Paul had an impeccable record of this self-centered religion. He was a master of it. If there was anybody in the whole world who could please God by keeping the rules, it was Paul. But the rule-keeping that he was doing, instead of making him a compassionate and a gentle and humble person, it made him an angry person and a proud person. If you try to live that way too, that's the same thing that will happen to you. It will not make you gentle. It will not make you humble, it will not make you gracious, it will make you proud and angry. Ephesians, though, is is written by a radically different person than the man that we first encounter in the book of Acts. After Paul met Jesus Christ face to face, he turned from his self-empowered religion and God commissioned him to do work. In verse 2 of this passage, it tells about that commissioning. It says... Surely you have heard about the administration that is the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly written. Paul was charged by God specifically to manage, to declare, to announce, to publicize, and proclaim this new message. And that new message is in verse 6. This mystery is that through the Gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Believe it or not, Paul was actually in prison for announcing to the Gentiles God's grace. He's in prison for announcing God's grace, which he never thought he needed, to Gentiles who he never thought were worthy to receive it. It's an astounding transformation. Let me prove that to you, that he's in, in prison for preaching to the Gentiles. Keep your finger in Ephesians 3 and turn with me over to Acts chapter 21. I want to show you this from Acts chapter 21. Paul here, up until this point in time, has been traveling throughout the Gentile world, and in Acts chapter 21, he returns to Jerusalem. He comes back to the city that is the capital of Judaism in the world. And look at verse 17 of Acts 21. It says, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers, that is, fellow Christians, received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James who was the leader of, church, of the church in Jerusalem, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. They're thrilled. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are ecstatic about Paul's work among the Gentiles and how they have becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is in Jerusalem, and the elders ask him for appearance sake, for propriety sake, to go and offer a sacrifice in the temple. And that's what he does. The rest of the passage tells us about that uh, sacrifice. And we'll pick up the story again in verse 27. Verse 27. When the seven days that were part of the ritual that Paul was doing were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So these are Jews that have been following Paul among Gentiles. And, and look what they said. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized them, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defied this holy place. And the passage tells us that Paul actually hadn't brought Greeks into the temple, but they thought that these men, these Jews, thought that Paul had done that. So here he is. He's a man in this holy city of Judaism, and, and he has been accused of preaching against the temple and against the law of Moses and against the Jews to the Gentiles. And there are Jews that are there that I irate at Paul. Well, they go into this mob scene. Paul's rescued from the mob by the Romans, and he asks the Roman governor if he can address his, this crowd. This is, <laughs> this is awesome. Paul's like, this mob wanted to kill me. They were going to tear me apart. Before you put me in jail, can I speak to them, please? <laughs> yes, go ahead. And in verse 1 of chapter 22, he starts, Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And astoundingly, uh, verse 2, when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. And in chapter 22, he tells his testimony. He talks about how the fact that he was raised in a Jewish home, he was a, a follower of Judaism. He uh, was um, uh, persecuted the church. He, he was discipled by this great leader, uh, Gamaliel. Um, 
And then he speaks about, in verse 6, about how he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And the people are listening very quietly to everything that Paul's saying until he gets to verse 21 of Acts 22. Look what it says. Paul's speaking. He says, Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And as soon as he mentions the G word, Gentiles, verse 22 The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shout, Rid the earth of him, he's not worthy to live. And Paul's put in prison. Paul spent two years in prison in Caesarea. He was sent to Rome. He was in Rome at least two years. uh, And uh, so he spent a total of four years. Sometime during that time that he was in Rome, he wrote the letter to to the Ephesians. And he was literally in prison for the sake of the Gentiles, for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. I'd like you to think for a minute about, um, about this, uh, what, what Paul is doing here. For the sake of the unity of the church, for the privilege of announcing that Jesus Christ has put Jews and Gentiles together in the church, Paul went to prison. Paul, this man who was not naturally inclined to love Gentiles, not naturally inclined to love grace, is in prison for preaching grace to Gentiles. How far will you go for the unity of the church? What burdens will you bear for the sake of the body? I want you to think for a minute about how you respond when when someone makes an obnoxious comment. It happens. In a small group, in a committee meeting, in in the foyer after the service... What if they say something rude or insensitive to you? Something personally offensive. Something about your family or about your parenting or about your appearance or about your attitude. Um, Your response at that moment will speak about your understanding of the consequences, the costs you are willing to bear for the unity of the church. This is not, we're not talking about going to prison here. I'm, I'm talking about responding when someone's rude to you. People go to the mat for inane comments. They, they fight over this. Don't look at that man or that woman as they speak and, and, and um, ignore it and walk away fuming. Don't, don't walk away fuming. Don't feel the need to correct everything that you hear said. Don't walk away and complain about it to somebody else. Don't walk away and decide that you're just not going to talk to that person anymore because they're rude and you're just going to avoid them. If you can, as much as lies within you, just just let that go. Relax. Recognize that people say heartless things. I'm a master at it. Uh, 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 Bear the burden of that obnoxious statement. Carry that cause. Suffer in that way for the sake of the unity of the church. You can't always let everything go, but as much as you possibly can, for the sake of the unity of the church, I'll bear that. I'll, I'll pay that cost. I'll endure the, the, the hurt of, of your inane comment that you probably don't even know is so painful to me. I want you to finish this sentence. How, how would you finish this sentence? For the sake of the unity of the body, I will... And everybody who considers this church their home should be able to finish that sentence in some way. For the sake of the unity of the body, I will, to the best of my ability, I'm not going to pass along gossip. 
I'm not going to mutter when the person who's supposed to take over for me in the nursery doesn't show up and I'm stuck in there again. Or, or uh, I, I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. The church is that important. Unity is that worth fighting for. If it sent Paul to prison, what can you bear? Uh, we fight for the, the unity of the church because this message transformed Paul's life. But secondly, the unity of the church is worth fighting for because it unveils God's plans. It unveils God's plans. Verses 3 through 5, Paul writes about his experiences and he uses the word mystery to describe this message of the unity of the Jews and Gentiles. In fact, if you wanted to, it would be wise for you as you're reading your Bible to underline the word mystery every time you see it in this passage. You'll find it a number of times. Um, Look with me again at the text here. Verse 2, we'll start. Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The word mystery in the Bible is not talking about something that Agatha Christie wrote. The word mystery in the Bible refers to something that is unrevealed that has now been made known. It's something that God knows and now He has shown it to human beings. Human beings did not figure it out through their ingenuity. Uh, they didn't figure it out because they're so smart. They know it because God has revealed it. Um, maybe you can use this concept of mystery to uh, help settle an issue that husbands and wives sometimes struggle with. Men, when you can't figure out what your wife wants you to do or what she would like for Christmas... Tell her it's a mystery and you will only know it by revelation. You're not going to figure it out. It's going to need to be revealed to you. A mystery is part of God's plan that He has known from the beginning that He has now made known. And Paul refers here to the revelation that's made to the apostles and the prophets. When did this revelation take place? I do not know. But we do know that, that sometimes God did reveal specific things to the Apostle Paul. In fact, this morning, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, and where Paul writes, For I received from the Lord Himself what I also passed on to you. There was a point in time where Paul and Jesus had a face-to-face conversation and Jesus told Paul about communion and what it's supposed to be like and what it's for and how it's supposed to be done. And there was also apparently a point in time where the Lord himself appeared or spoke in a vision in some way to the Apostle Paul to reveal to him this mystery that now, uh, whereas formerly God had been dealing with the nation of Israel, the Jews, now through Christ the message is to go to the Gentiles too, and Jews and Gentiles are brought together in one glorious church. If you trace the word mystery in the New Testament, you'll find out it refers to a lot of important events. In Ephesians chapter 1, God's plan to bring everything under Christ's authority is a mystery. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, Christ's love for the church is a mystery. In Colossians 2, Christ Himself is a mystery. In Romans 11, God's plan for Israel is a mystery. All these things now unveiled, and to that belongs this concept of the unity of the church. 
if it matters this much to God, that God holds this, this revelation in this treasury, what are you willing to fight for for the unity of the congregation? I haven't mentioned it before, but this passage in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3 is a passage that I think about a lot when someone suggests to me that we should have a contemporary service as part of our worship. Over the years it's happened. Um, um, we should have a, a traditional and a contemporary service, two different types of services. A lot of, of churches do that. And, and people, when they ask me that, they usually ask... Um, they want to see the church grow. They want to see, some of them, they want a church atmosphere that they think would be more attractive to their, their own children. So, could we do this? Those are, those are good reasons to ask that question. For the growth of the church, for my family, Pastor, can, can we do that? And I always, I always think about this, this passage if, if Christ died to unite the church ethnically, how, how can we presume to divide it culturally by instruments or by style? <laughs> Cynics say that if you have a traditional service, you'll make the older generation happy. If you have a contemporary service, you'll make the younger generation happy. If you have a blended service, you make no one happy. <laughs> The Bible calls you to join yourself to a local body of believers to give your heart and your soul and your life to the men and women who are there. What are you willing to bear? What are you willing to endure? What are you willing to flex for for the sake of the unity of the body? In verse 6, it tells us more specifically about how this is supposed to work in your life. And in itself, verse 6 is a fitting in, in uh, transition to the Lord's Supper. Verse 6 tells us that it's through the Gospel that we're sharers together in Christ. I read the book of Ephesians and I can understand intellectually what Paul is saying. He's arguing that I should be willing to bear costs, to suffer for the sake of the unity of the church. I understand that intellectually, but the truth of the matter is, I don't really want to. Do you really want to? It's not natural, is it? It is not natural to forbear with other people. It's not natural to sacrifice for their good. It's not natural when you extend grace to extend grace upon grace to someone. This is a sign of our alienation from God that it's that it's not natural to want to sacrifice and serve for other people. Sometimes when you do that, you keep score, don't you? Keep score of how many sacrifices you've made so somebody ought to make it up to you. You end up like that family. The mother was serving her little boys breakfast and pancakes. And uh, they, there was one pancake left and they both wanted the one pancake, the two little boys at the table. And their mother said, now boys, remember what Jesus would do. And one little brother looked at his, his other and said, you be Jesus this time. You, be, you sacrifice this time. It's your turn. I don't have to. It's not right that I have to all the time. A few minutes ago, I, I spoke about uh, music. 
my in-laws go to a great church in Buffalo. Um, it's the church that Kathy grew up in. It's a marvelous congregation. It's a gospel-preaching church. They're spreading the gospel. They're planting churches. They're involved in missions all over the world. It, it's, it's a great congregation. When we visit, when we go to this church, I hate the music. Uh, I, I, I sit down in church. Um, it, it's, now, this, I'm going to make myself sound stodgy, all right, instead of old. I use the term stodgy instead of old. Uh, I, the music, it's too loud. Um, it's repetitive. It's trite. They have these lights flashing everywhere. I cannot figure out why in the How does God glorify by a light show? I cannot figure that out. I, 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 we've talked about whether or not if we moved to, to Buffalo, if, if we would ever go to that church. I have no plans to move to Buffalo, but, uh, so we don't need to make that decision. But I, I leave the church and I think, boy, I, I don't know. What if it's your own church that's moving in that direction, the place that you've called home for a long time, or something else is going on that just rubs you the wrong way? You have options at that moment, don't you? You can find a church where you like everything. Keep looking until you find a congregation where nothing ever bothers you, where no one ever challenges you, and nobody ever pushes you or upsets you, and everything is just, just hunky-dory. Find the perfect church for you. Um, I'm a Christian. I don't believe it, but all I can say to that idea is good luck. The other option is, is for you, you can just grin and bear it. Ugh, I'm putting up with this because I have to, and it's the right thing to do. Is God honored by that? Does that honor God when you come to church and something happens and you say, all right, God, I'm going to do it. Would you be pleased if, if uh, um, you received a Christmas present on uh, Sunday, December 25th, and you opened the present and it was, it was something beautiful and you looked at your, uh, your relative who gave it to you and you said, oh, this is so nice, thank you. And they looked at you and they said, I gave it to you because I had to. <laughs> I mean, would you be honored by that? You'd be like, if you love it so much, take it back. I don't want it. Is God honored with our gutting it out, with our gritting, I'm going to put up with this? God's not honored by our faking it. So, so what do we do? How do we feel this passage? How do we feel Paul's joy of being in prison for the sake of the Gentiles? How do we enter into that? I think it enters into it. That's this why Paul mentions the gospel. Paul, when Paul mentions here, when, when the gospel sinks deeply into your heart, you will then feel the joy over this. I've mentioned the Apostle Paul's example in this passage. He went from the highest of heights in Jewish culture to a Roman prison. And he did it gladly. That is amazing. Uh, this week I was reading about Paul a little bit. And uh, you know in the early parts of Acts, he's known as Saul. His name is Saul. Saul. Saul is his first name. Paul is his last name. And he was known as, as Saul at the beginning. And Saul's a great name. If you're going to be Jewish, to have the name Saul, because the Saul in the Bible is tall, he's powerful, he's impressive, he looks like a king. Uh, when, when Paul's parents na- uh, named him Saul, they were, trying, they were giving him a good... It's like naming your son Rocky. You know, just a strong, great name. Or Slats. I, you know, just this great, great name. 
Do you know what Paul means? Paul means little, small, small Paul. Before, when he was earning his way to heaven, he was working out his, his rule-keeping. He was mighty Saul. And after he encountered the grace of God, he saw how small he really was. And he said, call me Paul. If you ask Paul, if you say, Paul, you're in prison, you changed your name, that's great. Paul would say, oh, I'm just following Jesus' example. See, Jesus didn't go from the highest of heights in Judaism to prison. Jesus went from at his right, this father's right hand, as the son of God, and he, was, he went to a, a manger. And he didn't consider being at God's right hand something he had to hold on to. He didn't consider all those rights and privileges something to grasp, something to cling to. He, he came to earth and, and he didn't enter just prison. He, he entered death for us. Not just any death, death on a, on a cross. For the sake of the unity of the church, Jesus went to the cross. See, the, the Bible tells us that we are, every single human being on earth is under the sentence of death before God. Before God who is worthy of infinite love and infinite obedience and infinite delight, we have rejected Him and we have chosen our own way and we find joy in, in silly, empty things and we love silly, empty things. We're guilty before Him and deserving of His wrath. We've sinned and naturally there is nothing for us but the looming expectation of His terrible, horrible judgment. But on the cross, Jesus bore that judgment for us. He suffered so that we might be reconciled to God and through that reconciliation uh, to God be reconciled to one another you enter into that reconciliation by faith, by trusting in what God has done on the cross for your forgiveness, so that you might have life from God and before God. And when what Christ has done sinks deeply into your heart, it, it changes you. It, it melts you. You begin to see that the costs that you bear for the unity of the church are not costs, but they're glad privilege. They, they, they move from being fines and taxes that you have to pay. They move from that to being admission prices that you gladly pay so that you can get in on the deal of joining your, your Savior in suffering. They're the result of the overflow of God's great kindness to you through Jesus Christ. And in that light, there are no costs at all. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize, even as we prepare to partake of these elements that are before us, that we uh, fail you in, in many ways as we think about the church. Father, we're, we're surrounded by people, this, this culture that tells us to do our own thing and to be our own people and and uh, it, it, it's stunning to read Ephesians and to, to find out how much you value unity. We confess to you our, our failures. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would so transform us by the beauty of the glory of our Savior Jesus Christ that we, that we would uh, fight one another for the privilege of suffering for each other.
that, that we would gladly bear costs, that we would gladly endure consequences uh, for the unity of the church, this body for which Christ died, over which he is the Lord. Uh, transform us, we pray, uh, by your Son and in his name. Amen.